Amen. Good job, guys. Appreciate that. That's a tough song to sing. And it's a good thing they're young, because I don't think I'd get up there on some of those notes, but <laughs> they did a great job. Take your Bibles tonight. Go with me to the book of Isaiah. And uh, Isaiah in the Old Testament, tonight we get into uh, the section uh, that deals with the prophets. And uh, so if you notice there in your notes, I'm going to do a small introduction tonight and try to keep it moving a little bit. But uh, this section, uh, really from here to the end of the Old Testament, all deals with the prophets. So notice the heading there. The prophetic books dealing with the prophets. The subject of this last section of the Old Testament, notice God's counsel concerning Israel, concerning the nations. <clears throat> the, the, the Bible uses the word the ethnos, and of course we think of all the various groups, all the nations, and you have to understand you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. And so that's what that is talking about there. So there are many other nations that, that deals in the book of Isaiah and other books of the prophets. Notice also it concerns God's counsel concerning his son, Jesus Christ. And we see that through the Old Testament. Now, the purpose of the prophetic books is to give us a light in a dark place. Now, we just saw last Sunday in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, ye are the light of the world. And so understand that God, even in the Old Testament, the darkness of the sin in the Old Testament times, that God gives us a light. Now we see this, Peter writes in Second Peter 1.19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, Notice the words here, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. And so we understand the, the uh, purpose here behind the prophetic books. They serve a tremendous uh, portion, a, a large portion of the Old Testament of our Bible. I think we have a chart here that I want to show you. I've, I've been using this, but I want you to view this because notice the divisions. We've already looked at the section of the law, the five books we covered many books there in the historical section. Then we covered those five books of poetry. We finished those last week. And so notice the last two columns are the section in the Old Testament that, that deal with the prophets. Now, they're broke down into the major prophets and the minor prophets. We'll talk a little bit about that in just a minute. But I want you to see this. Now, the major prophets, of course, there's four of them. The minor prophets, there are 12 of them. And so in your notes there, again, it says, that as you're looking at the prophetic books, as the reader, you should keep in mind that all the prophets, except five, all right? So when you look at that list, all the prophets in the Old Testament, except for five of them, prophesied before Israel's captivity in Babylon. So uh, keep that in mind as you're reading these that all of them except for five. Now, notice Ezekiel and Daniel were two of the prophets that actually prophesied during the captivity. And then we see Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi were three of the prophets that prophesied after the captivity. So when you read those books in your Bible, it would help all of us, it would help you personally to know 
Okay, what's the setting here? Is this before they went into captivity? Now, if you remember, and it's not in your notes tonight, but Israel's big problem was idolatry. Uh, By the way, we may not have some little statue, but anything that comes between us and God is an idol. We have our own forms of idolatry, and America should keep in mind, and Christians ought to always remember that, listen, God was not going to have no other gods before him, and the same is true today. He should be first in our lives, and because of that, they went into captivity, and of course, God always has a way of humbling us. And so we see the, the placement of each of these prophets and how they fit in either before captivity, during the time of captivity, or after. Now understand that the messages would be different. If it was going into the captivity, it would be different kind of messages than while they're in the captivity. And while they're in the captivity, it would be different than after they came out of the captivity. So all of those things as we're reading through these books of the Old Testament. Now, here's a little timeline, and and again, I know a lot of times people like to see things and picture things a little bit better. You don't necessarily have this in, in your notes or anything, but I just wanted to do a visualization here. And I want you to see the timeline. Notice beginning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a period of about 200 years. Then you see the 400 years that Israel was in Egypt's land as slaves, and then God allows them to be led out. Notice the 40 years in the wilderness in the book of Exodus. Then you have 400 years leading up to the time of King David, from David to the Babylonian captivity, 400 years. Then you see, notice the 70 years down below the line. That's the time of the captivity. And then you see the 400 years, which actually says between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's that intertestimonial period. We call it the the years of silence. There was no prophecy from God during that time. In other words, God was silent for 400 years. Now, it's hard for us to kind of get a hold of because God, we have His Word is in its entirety. But if you can imagine being God's people and through this prophet and then the next prophet and the next prophet, God saying, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. God giving message after message, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, and after all that time, God goes completely silent. As a matter of fact, the first time God speaks in the New Testament is when when, uh, we see the promise of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. And so as you look at this particular chart, underneath of it, you can see those historical books there. But I want you to focus on what's under on the right-hand side because during that 400 years, notice before the captivity, you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Jeremiah wrote the Lamentations, and then Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Then you have Ezekiel and Daniel, Deering, and then after you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now remember, we already covered those three books. They're written underneath of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So a lot of times it helps me, I don't know about you, it helps me to understand historically sometimes how they are put together, all right? So if you're interested in this, 
and you want a copy of it, let me know, and I'll print that off if it'll help you, okay? I didn't include that in your notes because you didn't pay for it, okay? So uh, as we look at this tonight, notice here, as we look back in our notes, the prophets, okay, we're focusing on just an introduction to the prophets. The prophets were true prophets. There were many false prophets even in the Old Testament. By the way, there are false prophets today. There are false teachers. There are antichrists. And so understand, the true prophets were ones that spoke and wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So again, we see that in the Word of God. They were speaking the words of God. They were writing the words of God. And they were being moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit of God. Prophecy, here it is, simple definition, is speaking forth the revealed Word of God. That's what they were speaking forth whether the messages pertain to the present or the future. And so understand, just like uh, the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament? Moses. Now, was Moses there at creation? No. How did he know what to write? The Holy Spirit guided him as he wrote God's words. Well, the same is true when it comes to the prophetical section of the Bible, whether it was present or the future, they were speaking forth the revealed Word of God. It is the revelation of the will of God by a man who is God's chosen spokesman. Now, the same is true, you see it even in the New Testament. They were not prophets, but God chose. There were some 40 different people God allowed to record, to write the Word of God. It says, the prophet of God, look at this, stood first before God to discern God's will. Then the prophet stood before men to declare that divine will. So as the prophet received from God, then the prophet declared to the people what he received from God. And that's what we see is how the God is giving these prophets the opportunity to speak forth. What a privilege it was. And look, I'm not receiving new revelation from God, but listen, even in our day, it is my privilege to stand and open up the, the inspired Word of God and to declare it or to preach the Word of God. And we find that these prophets were actually preaching messages. Look, there's God's given His Word. You cannot add to it nor take away from it But when these men, these prophets, were speaking forth the Word of God, they didn't have the Bible in its entirety the way we do today. And so what a wonderful opportunity for them. Now it says, Old Testament prophets rebuked sin in the field and in the palace. They rebuked sin before priest and king. They pulled no punches, showed no favor to anyone. I love reading some of these Old Testament prophets who just reared back and listened, there was no fear of man in them. Uh, they told people what, what, they, what God instructed them to say. Notice priests and kings had stooped low into sin so that there was no spiritual leaders among the people. How sad, and it's still the same way today. There are very few spiritual leaders in the world even today. Now that's where prophets come in. They filled that gap for God. And because, but due to their message of truth and prediction, and because of that, they were mocked as God's messengers. Their messages 
were despised. They were thrown out of towns, and they were beaten, imprisoned, and they were murdered. If you want to read a little bit about how they were treated, read at the end of Hebrews chapter number 11. They were sawn asunder. Uh, they, there were many things, but listen, they, they were doing what they were doing because it was God's will for them. It was God's message that he gave to them to give to others. God's word is, is never going to be popular to unsaved people. But yet, what does Jesus say? Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, I think we do need to always practice speaking the truth in love. But people need to hear the truth. And when God gives you a message, I've had times where the Lord's been, uh, gave me a message to preach. And of course, every week I, I ask the Lord, God, what would you have me to preach to your people? Sometimes God will give me a message and I'll say to the Lord, that's, Lord, that's not going to be an easy one to preach. Can you give me something a little bit lighter? Something that maybe people will like. And God says, no, that's the message right there. And oftentimes, people do not like it because God's word brings about conviction. Now, notice prophecy is God's way of writing history in advance. That's what it is. For those who accept the Bible as the revealed word of God, there's no question regarding prophecy. We accept it. Why? Because it is God's word. Fulfilled prophecies is one of the infallible proofs of the inspiration of Scripture. And when you look at your Bible as a whole, not just the Old Testament, not just the books of the prophets, there is much prophecy in the Bible from beginning to the end. Now, when you look at it, not just Old Testament, there are many prophecies that have already been fulfilled. But there are still many prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So as we look at it, God is giving us His Word, and if we accept it as the inspired Word of God, notice what it does. It assures us as a believer that the unfulfilled prophecy will, in God's timing, be fulfilled. In other words, if God's done it before... God will do it again. If God has fulfilled that promise, that prophecy, God will fulfill these other prophecies. And we believe that because we believe God's Word is true. Now, while some prophetical books are designed as, notice here, they're designated as major and minor, talking about the prophets. Notice one of those is no less important than the other. Major and minor, those distinctions have to do with the size of the book, not the content of the book. Some of those small books that we call the books of the minor prophets are just as powerful, just as, and by the way, they're all inspired of God. Every last one of them. No one is more significant than the other. They're all important when it comes to the the overall scope of the Word of God. Now, there are Five major themes of the prophetical books, uh, the Bible prophecy, and notice that what they are. First of all, the first theme is, deals with the nation of Israel. Secondly, the second theme is Christ or the Messiah. Thirdly, deals with the Gentile nations, a much Bible prophecy dealing with the Gentile nations. And then we see prophecy dealing with the church, 
And then the last one would be called the last things. Or this could be known in doctrinal form as eschatology, dealing with the end times or last things. And certainly there are many prophecies dealing with the end times, and we are heading towards those days. We have no idea when they're going to come, but maybe they'll come soon, Lord. And so think about the, the prophetical books. Now let's dive in a little bit, and you can keep that in mind as we're going through each one of these. Maybe refer back to this a little bit if it helps you. But let's jump into Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is known as the evangelical prophet, okay? The evangelical prophet. His name means the salvation of Jehovah. Isaiah was a contemporary with these other individuals, Hosea, Micah, and Nahum. He was actually the fifth of the prophets. Now, when I say that he was a contemporary. I didn't say he was contemporary. There's a difference. That means that his ministry, God gave him, happened during the period that God used Hosea, Micah, and Nahum also. So all of these individuals, many of their ministries, many of their lives, and what they did for God overlapped with other individuals. Okay, That's what I mean by he was a contemporary. Now, the contents of the book of Isaiah, notice his message contains some things that are historical, but it is chiefly prophetical, the book of Isaiah. Notice three things in particular. The first thing it deals with that is prophetical is the indictment against Israel for her sinful condition and the need for Israel to repent or for repentance. And we see this, God dealing with Israel. We talked about that. Again, this is, they end up in captivity because of sin. And the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. All right? Many times we see great examples in the Bible. Israel is one of those. Uh, many times people don't understand. They want to use this word in a different meaning than what, it, what God uses in the Bible and it's the word backslide. The word's in the Bible. And Israel was backslidden from God. And we need to understand that. So first, the first thing we see in Isaiah's message is his indictment against Israel for her sinful condition and that she needed to repent. Now notice, secondly, is the impending Babylonian captivity. In other words... This was coming on. God is a holy God, but God is a just God. God will not wink at sin. And God was going to deal with Israel. You know what I love about God is this, and it's still true today. God gave Israel chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. And God has been that good to us. His grace God's long-suffering with us. And we see that Isaiah begins, some of his prophecies deal with the impending captivity that was coming. Notice the third one was God's redemption through the coming of the, the Messiah, and of course, the suffering Messiah, and the glory to be revealed through him 
in his future kingdom on earth. So if you look at those three, before you move on, I just want you to see here that as Isaiah prophesied the divine will of God, notice it was against Israel, and he was telling them what was coming, but then notice God didn't just cut them off. The Bible says that Isaiah began to prophesy of God's redemption. And we see a wonderful, beautiful picture there of, of course, the Lord that came in the book of Isaiah. Now, the book of Isaiah has the same number of chapters that the Bible has books, 66. The Bible has two main divisions, Old and New Testament. Isaiah has two main divisions. The first division of Isaiah includes chapters 1 to 39. The second division of Isaiah has uh, uh, chapters from 40 to 66. Well, when you look in our Bible, we have 39 books in the Old Testament, and we have how many in the New Testament? 27, which equals 66. So again, there is much when you look at the book of Isaiah, which the next statement says this, the book of Isaiah has many times been called the miniature Bible. It is amazing when you look at it, not trying to make it what it's not, but the parallel you can see in the divisions of the book of Isaiah and the Old and New Testament of our Bible and how much you can see. Remember, as somebody told me years ago, the Old Testament concealed is the New Testament revealed. Many things we see in the Old Testament are brought to light in the New Testament. Now, I understand that you have Israel in the Old Testament and God dealing in Isaiah's day with the nation of Israel and her need for repentance. In the New Testament, certainly we see that God is dealing with the church, but understand that when the New Testament begins, the gospel records, God is still primarily dealing with the nation of Israel. The primary target audience in the New Testament in the gospel records is still the nation of Israel. And because of the unbelief of the Jew, the gospel, the good news, went forth to the Gentile nations. And all the Gentiles said, Amen. <laughs> because we are not Jews. All right? So look at this chart. And of course, if you turn to your last page, you can see the chart there. We won't spend a lot of time because you have it there. Much of this I already said. Notice again the two divisions on the top. The judgment of God... And look what follows it in the second section of the book of Isaiah, the comfort of God. See, yes, God will judge Israel, but then notice that God will comfort them as they come out of that time of judgment. We see the prophecies here, the, the prophecies of Judah, the prophecies of the, deal with foreign, the nations, the warnings, and the promises that God makes. There's a small historical section there, chapters 36, 7, 8, and 9. And then when you go to the second section, you move beyond God's government to God's grace. And we see in that last half, we see the redemption that was promised and, of course, then God provided. Uh, you know, it's just like in, in Abraham's day how there was a ram caught in the thicket. God is always going to give us a uh, redemption, and that redemption is through His Son, Jesus who was a lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And then the last part actually deals with the reigning Lord. The redemption is realized, 
And there's so much there. I know I went through that quickly, but hopefully you'll use that chart when you're going through and maybe doing a deeper study in the book of Isaiah. Now look at the character of the book. We've said this already. It is mainly prophetical, dealing with many, many prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Now the subject of the book, this deals with this book in particular, is God's message of salvation for Israel and the nations through the Holy One of Israel. Do you know even in the book of Acts, Jesus is still referred to as the Holy One of Israel in the book of Acts. And so we find here that God's message of salvation is for Israel. The Bible says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now the purpose of the book is to reveal God's way of salvation for us through Jesus Christ. That is how a person is saved. Who is Jesus? Write it down. He's the Messiah. Uh, The Jew is still looking for the coming of the Messiah. They missed it. And he was there. And notice they're also, they see here the purpose is the kingdom of Christ over which we, the Bible tells us, are to be co-rulers. We will rule and reign with him, the Bible tells us. And so there's a great purpose to this book God's way of salvation for us through Jesus Christ. By the way, you remember the story, and I'll allude to it later, but remember how Philip joined himself to an Ethiopian eunuch, and the man was reading from the book of Isaiah. And he asked the man, understandest what thou readest? And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And so we find that salvation is only in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. See, folks that have been saved over the years, they've all been saved the same way. They've been saved by grace through faith. And that is salvation as God has given it to us. Look at the outline, two simple ways. You kind of saw it on the chart if you looked at it. It begins with the first section, the first 39 chapters, Jehovah's judgment and character. And you see, again, the prophecies there, the warnings, the historical section. And then the second part is Jehovah's comfort and redemption from chapter 44 to chapter 66, the end of the book. We look at this, redemption promised, Israel's deliverance, redemption provided, Israel's deliverer. And then we see redemption realized, Israel's glorious future. You know, even when you get to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, in the New Testament of the Bible, still deal with the nation of Israel. And chapter number 9 is God's dealings with Israel in the past. Chapter 10 is God's dealing with Israel in the present. And chapter 11 is God's dealings with Israel in the yet future. You see, God is not done with Israel, and we understand that from his word. Now, the scope of the book, Isaiah prophesied for approximately 65 years. And 65 years of ministry God gave to him. And notice the writer is Isaiah, and we see this. Look in your Bible or there in your notes. Look at this very first verse. Chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, 
who were kings of Judah. Now, do you remember the verse in the Bible that says, where there is no vision, what happens? People perish. So what was God giving to Isaiah? Look at it. The vision of Isaiah. Well, Isaiah saw. By the way, do you remember who wrote, who did God use to write the last book of our Bible? John, what book is it? Book of the Revelation. And John, listen, there were times when, uh, listen, I, I would have much rather have written many of the other books then God choose me to write the book of the Revelation. And the Bible says that as John was writing, there were times when John, and I don't know about you, but I'm still in awe when I read the book of Revelation. I'm reading it like it's some kind of sci-fi thing or something. That, and, and listen, I believe every word of it. You know why? Because it's God's word. It's not some fiction. But the Bible says that God had to say, John, write. You know why? Because John was going. So when you think about this book we're in tonight, Isaiah, the first of the prophets in our Old Testament, we find that it's the vision of God. God let Isaiah see what he saw. He saw it and he wrote it down. And he spoke God's vision to the people. What a privilege, but what a responsibility. You see, how would they know where there is no vision, where there's no word from God, the people perish? You know the problem in the world today? Is that the word of God is not being given out. The seed is still in the barn. No one's declaring the message of God. And people today do not know that they're sinners because no one has shown them from God's Word. Everybody with me tonight? You see, that's why we need to be a witness for the Lord. Because people are on their way to a Christless eternity. It's no different than what it was in Isaiah's day. The only difference is Isaiah was receiving new revelation from God, whereas God has given us his word, and our responsibility is to give it out. So as we look at this, notice it is understandable because many people, let me preface this statement here. When you read, remember how we've talked about there's two major sections in the book of Isaiah. You have the first section that deals with an entirely different topic. It deals with the judgment of God, the first 39 chapters. Then when you get to chapter 40, through the end of the book, chapter 66, you see the comfort of God. A lot of people want to say, which I don't believe, I don't ascribe to, they believe that there was maybe two different individuals that wrote, one wrote the first half, one wrote the second half, because of the different content that you see in the book. Well, when you study it and you understand it as God gave it to Isaiah, notice the statement now that it is understandable that in his later day, years of life that his style of writing would change, especially since the first section has to do with future events. You see, there was maybe, yes, as God showed him, but it's the same individual, I believe, that recorded the entire book. And notice, I believe he was a well-qualified 
prophet of God to predict Israel's captor and Israel's liberator. In other words, who it would that would take Israel into captivity and who it was that would deliver Israel from the captivity. I believe that he was well qualified. One thing that I love about it, it's not in your notes, but I found this to be interesting that Isaiah is quoted over 300 times in the New Testament. Many times you're reading your Bible, you don't even realize it, but the more familiar you get with the Word of God, the more you're like, wait a minute, I've read that somewhere else. Over 300 times in the New Testament. Now, let me just give you the magnitude of that. That over 300 times in the New Testament is more than from all other Old Testament prophecies combined. So you can understand the great importance of the book of Isaiah, not only in the Old Testament, but how God brings all of that book of Isaiah into the New Testament of our Bible. These people that say that they want to take the Bible and cut it in half, that the Old Testament doesn't apply to us today, listen, they are missing it. I want the whole counsel of God. And we must understand how important it is how the two testaments connect, how God's Word is one, 66 books, but yet one book. And we see this as we study this book. Now, to whom did he write to? His ministry was confined almost exclusively to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, we don't have the time tonight. Maybe you remember, or you can go back and look yourself. But you remember how Israel became a divided people, right? The, the two kingdoms, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom. And so, again, God reaching out to both of those groups of people. By the way, God, it was never God's intention, just like the church. God doesn't want there to be divisions in the church. God doesn't want there ever to be a divisions among God's people. And so we find that to, to uh, the book of Isaiah, to this prophet, his prophecies were almost exclusively to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, when did he write? The period of Isaiah's prophecy was about 745 to 680 B.C., which would have been approximately 25 years before the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom until about 40 years after it. So this is the time frame that Isaiah would have received from God and, of course, declared it, wrote it down. Now, where did he write it? It was recorded in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem, I love the key chapter. Uh, honestly, it didn't even have to think much about it. Chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah, which deals with the suffering Savior. You know, the Bible, not, not in that chapter, but in another chapter, mentions this. That Jesus was so brutalized, not for anything that he ever did, but because of our sins. The Bible says his visage was so marred that you couldn't even make out, you couldn't tell who he was. I hope you've never got over what Jesus did for you. How he gave himself. His back to the smiters. He was spat upon and his hair was plucked. All that my Savior went through because he loved me before I ever loved him. Isaiah 53, what an amazing, amazing chapter. Verse number 5, look at this. 
He was wounded for whose transgressions? Ours. He was bruised for whose iniquities? Ours. And notice the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes, what happened? We are healed. You know what? He took the punishment we deserved. He went to the cross for us. The key word here is salvation. Salvation is used 28 times in the book of Isaiah. The key phrase mentioned it earlier is the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away. What's that last word? Backward. By the way, I know that's about Israel, but doesn't that verse describe America? I mean, you look at that verse. What a sinful nation. People laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They've forsaken the Lord. They've provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Who are we to point the finger at Israel? We're just as guilty. We got just as much blood on our hands. We're a sinful people. Notice the key thought consolation and salvation. Now that word consolation carries the idea of comfort. Do you remember in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the Bible says there in Luke chapter 2, there was a man that was in the temple. His name was Simeon. And you got to get the whole story. Maybe I, I may not be able to do justice in the time we have, but here's part of it. The Bible says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. You know, all those years, through the entire Old Testament, they were waiting. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for some comfort, some consolation the oppression that they were under because of sin. And here's this Simeon living in the day that he's living in. Now listen, there had been many men that had lived on this earth before Simeon. But God allowed Simeon to live. And just like everyone else, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost, that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Can you imagine that, Brother Flynn? That's a promise of God. Simeon, you're not going to die. The Lord's Christ is going to come during your lifetime. Talk about something to look forward to. He had no idea when. But he had the promise from God, you're not going to die until you see the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. Now look at verse 34. The Bible says that Simeon blessed him. Remember how Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple. And the Bible says that Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, 
Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. Simeon got to see the Lord. He got to see the Messiah. You know what? If I'd have been like Simeon, I'd have been like, Lord, I'm ready now. You let me see the Messiah. And see, that's what that's when you look at Isaiah, the key thought here is consolation and comfort. What does Jesus say? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's still our consolation. We still find comfort. My peace give I unto you, not as the world giveth peace. He says, I give you peace. His peace passes all understanding. See, I love this book of Isaiah for so many reasons. Notice the spiritual thought, he is coming. Well, who's he? The Messiah. The Messiah is coming. And notice that, again, this is prior to, this is prophetical, right? And so that as Isaiah prophesied, there would be many more years that would come and go until in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son into the world. And in God's timing, God chose when His Son would come. By the way, in God's timing, He's going to choose when His Son will come back. And so look at a couple things here that make, I think, the book unique. If you have your Bible there, look at chapter 1. Look at verse number 16. The Bible says, Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings, From before mine eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat of the good of the land. But if ye refuse... And rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Now remember, he was giving forth God's message. So when you look at these verses, notice the remedy for sin. And you can see, literally, the remedy is everything we just read from verse 16 all the way to verse number 20. Say, what can we do in regards to sin? Those verses right there, chapter 1, 16 to 20, give you everlasting bit of it. Now look, turn in your Bibles over to chapter 6 of Isaiah. And notice this section here that deals with the need for salvation. Look in chapter 6, look at verse number 5. The Bible says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this had touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, what's those last two words? Send me. You know what Isaiah was saying? I'm available. Lord, here I am. You know, and so when you think about 
soul winning. This isn't a new concept. Going out and telling others. And so when you look at this, he saw himself in verse 5 as God saw him. He saw his own need. He saw his condition and the need of others. He was given a call to reach others. He willingly responded to this call. And then if you flip over to chapters 55, the Bible says there in verse 6 and 7, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. What a great God we have. And then in chapter 55, verse 1, we see his invitation. And here's the invitation. As we heard it this morning, everyone that thirsteth come. Notice that he that hath no money, he says in that same verse, if you don't have anything to offer. By the way, when we came to Christ, we had nothing and we were nothing. It was not because of our own merits, or anything that we could have done for him, he did it all for us. And we see the invitation there. Look, there is still a great need for soul winning. Why? Because there are still people that are perishing in their sin. And we see this in the book of Isaiah. Look at this. We also see the millennial and the future. And again, the millennial deals with the thousand-year reign of Christ. And we see this as you look at this, the judgment Notice in that day, talking about the day of the Lord, what a great study that is. You see the, how Israel will be restored to the land, the restoration of Palestine, the blessings for restored Israel, the victory over death, the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, and the separation of the saved and the lost. And all of that, I've given you the references there You can study that out in the book of Isaiah, but you can also make cross-references over into the New Testament dealing with the millennial reign of Christ. And listen, that was the big thing. There were many Jews, uh, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians that felt threatened, and by the way, they should have felt threatened when Jesus was here, because he came and uh, understand how that as he rode in Jerusalem, they, they waved the palm branches and they laid the garments. And listen, what they wanted Jesus to do was to establish his kingdom on earth at that particular time. But Jesus did not do that, but there would come a time where Jesus will come as King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, again, people in that day were tired of the oppression of man. And one day, God's going to deliver us from this present world, and we're looking forward to that. Now, notice Christ magnified many ways. Uh, we find, first of all, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6, as the preexistent Christ. By the way, this is one of the cardinal doctrines of the Word of God. Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem's manger. He has always been, and He always will be. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, watch this, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. What's those next three words? No, 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 the Everlasting Father. That's his name. How long is everlasting? Forever. He has always been and he always will be. 
We see the preexistence of Christ in Isaiah. We see the incarnate God in Isaiah 7:14. Look at this. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. What was it the Jews always required? A sign. Lord, show us a sign. Well, listen, it doesn't get any better than, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name. What's the name? What does it mean? God with us. Listen, even Mary struggled. Lord, how is it possible? I haven't been with a man. God says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And the sign was the incarnation of God, God in the flesh. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He, he became equal, understanding that he was God in the flesh. He was not 50% man, 50% God. He was 100% man and 100% God. And the Bible shows us that he was incarnate in Isaiah 7, 14. Look in, in chapter 53, and we won't turn there to read it. It's really the entire chapter. The Bible gives us the suffering Savior. Again, he was wounded. He was bruised. The chastisement of our peace was upon him with his stripes. You know, listen, listen. what Jesus went through, no, no normal man could have, could have handled, could have gone through physically what Jesus endured for us. Notice in chapter 53 in verse 12, we see the resurrected Lord And the Bible says, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. In the last part of that verse, we see him as the intercessor, that he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He interceded for us. You think about that that thief on the cross that looked to him and he said, Lord, Remember me this day when thou goest into paradise. And Jesus said, this day thou shalt be with me. What a blessing it is to know that he is our intercessor. There is only one intercessor between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. And many people think it's Mary, but it's not. It's the Son of God. Notice in chapter 55 and verse 1, said the verse earlier, he's presented in Isaiah as the living word. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. In chapter 65, right before the end of the book, he's presented as the reigning king. The Bible says there in verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Think about that, the wolf and the lamb. And the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and the dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Listen, it's going to be a new day because the Lord's going to be on the throne. And we understand God is ruling and reigning today. God is sovereign, but there's going to come a day where he's going to establish his kingdom. And we see that in the end of the book of Isaiah as he is magnified. Now notice the conclusion, just a few thoughts here that it has been suggested that Isaiah chapter 50, uh, chapter 1 through Isaiah 39 actually breathe the Old Testament spirit of judgment and warning, and chapters 40 to 66 breathe with the New Testament spirit of grace and peace. And again, you can see the two divisions. Now, it says here, is it any wonder then when Philip did join himself to that eunuch, and he found that eunuch reading from Isaiah the prophet, that he began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. He is still 
and has always been the answer for every problem in life. This man was reading it. He could not understand. Listen, Philip didn't tell him, you need to find a good church. Philip didn't tell him, you need to give money. Philip didn't tell him, you need to get baptized. Philip told him, you need to know Jesus, is what he told him. And it's still the same way today. Notice the book of Isaiah provides us with the most comprehensive prophetic picture of Jesus Christ in the entire Old Testament. It includes the full scope of his life, which deals with the announcement of his coming, the proclamation of the good news. I love Isaiah 61.1. Billy Sunday used to always use that verse there as he preached many times in his great meetings. And notice it also covers in 52 the sacrificial death of Christ. And in chapter 60, it deals with his return to claim his own. In other words, it covers and includes the full scope of his life. I taught for 12 years in a Bible college every semester a class called the life of Christ. I focused on the four gospel records in the New Testament of the Bible, but I made many references back because even in Isaiah, you see the full life of Christ presented by God in his word long before Jesus ever came. It's a beautiful thing as you look at it. Notice many wonder about the strong presence of judgment that runs through the first 39 chapters when the theme of the book is salvation. People ask, how can the two exist, uh, coexist, judgment and salvation? And when you think about that, the presence of judgment indicates its necessity for salvation to occur. Because we can have salvation, we must have a need for it. People need to see the need. Like I said this morning, you and I, we need to be that salt and help to create a thirst in others that they need to know that they need Christ. Why? Because they are a sinner and they are lost and undone without Him. Now, the majority of the early chapters of Isaiah deal uh, detailed judgments against the people who have turned their backs on the Lord talking about Israel, showing us that those who persist, this, this is where the rubber meets the road for us. It's more practical. Notice it shows us that those who persist in their rebellion will receive judgment. We also see God's faithfulness to His promise that He will preserve a small remnant of believers, faithful believers. And you know, when you think about this, it was Paul's heart and desire that all Israel would be saved. Can I just say it this way? Just because somebody's a Jew does not mean that they're saved. Only those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will spend eternity with Him. And God has always promised to preserve a small remnant. Listen, we might be the minority as far as Christians in the world, but with God, we're the majority. And we need to always keep that in mind. We're on the winning side. Notice Christ and his salvation figure, actually, they, they figure uh, prominently in the prophecy of Isaiah. So we see his salvation prominently figured into Isaiah's prophecy. God miraculously holds out hope. <laughs> this is God's love for us, his mercy for us. He holds out hope to an unrepentant people offering cleansing for sins and the blessing that comes from faith and obedience in Him. God holding out hope to who? A sinful people. 
That's why, again, we see, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Look at this. Though your sins be what? As scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, here's the key. Notice that next word, I-F. What is it? If. That's a conditional word. That means God is ready to pardon you. God is ready to forgive you. He's faithful and just. But notice the Bible says here, If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and you rebel against God, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Sixty-five years Isaiah stood in very difficult times and declared the Word of God. I don't know how much longer God's going to give you and you and you and you and me tonight. For the rest of our lives, every day, what should we do? We should declare the Word of God. People need the truth, and may we give it out to them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Isaiah. And thank you for the books of the prophets. Most of all, thank you for the words, the Word of God. And I pray that you'd help us over these next many weeks as we look at these books individually. Lord, I know that there's no way that we did justice to this tremendous book, book that has over 300 references in the New Testament of the Bible. But Lord, I pray that we would see the importance of this book of salvation, comfort and consolation through the Lord Jesus Christ. This world needs Jesus. And God, I pray that you would use us the way you used Isaiah to speak the truth, but speak it in love. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.